I just want to begin uh, this morning's sermon by thanking Ben and Jenna for the past four Sundays. Ben and Jenna have been preaching for us about this incredible um, book, which is based in Scripture and inspired by Scripture, a book called Every Moment Holy, which has a list of incredible prayers. And so I'm just thankful for both of them uh, giving me that time to focus and study and prepare for this sermon series and future sermon series. But in that time, I've had some opportunities to be introspective about myself as a minister and one of the ministers of this church. And I've been thinking about um, a kind of chronic spiritual weakness I have, which is that I want control over my life. I want control over my life. So I've been having to ask uh, a hard question, uh, which is, what does it take to be a control freak? Now, in my life, it doesn't take all that much. The recipe is not that complicated. Two of the primary ingredients are a questioning mind and an anxious heart. The questioning mind kicks off the process with questions about the future. What could happen tomorrow? What could happen next week? What could happen with my life 10 years from now? And then the, my heart takes those questions and worries about them. And speaking as a control freak, my worst habit is to catastrophize small events. When Allison got accepted to a university in England, we were just dating at the time, and I didn't want to date long distance, so I wanted to look for a job in the city where she was going to school. And I looked for a job overseas and actually got an internship working at a church, but then I had to apply to uh, get a visa, and I scrutinized over every single detail in that application until I submitted it and realized that I misspelled my name. My name is Mitchell East, and I spelled it M-I-T-H-C-E-L-L, Mitzel East. And this was my thought process. This is fantastic. My visa application will be rejected, which means I will lose this internship, which means I won't go to England, which means Allison and I will break up, and then I'll die. I'm very good at catastrophizing. Now, if that at all sounds familiar, if you've ever had that kind of thought process, if you've ever struggled with that chronic spiritual temptation, then you and I need to hear this sermon. This is not just for you, this is for me to hear. We are starting a brand new sermon series today called The Forerunner. Over the past month, I've been away from the pulpit, but I've been studying one character who has just captivated my interest and imagination, and there's a picture of him below me and below the pulpit. This character is John the Baptist. The more I studied him, the more I realized he is all over the New Testament, and for such a prominent character, we talk about him like he's the opening gig to the main band we came to see. We, we think about him like a ladder that we climb up to Jesus and then push away. But the more you know about John the Baptist, the more you know you can't disconnect him from Jesus. And the more you know about what happens in his life, the more you will be amazed at what God can do in your life. Now, what really blew me away about John is Christ's 
description of John to the crowds. Remember, this quote is from God in the flesh. Jesus says, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Among those born of women, thank you, Jesus, for that clarifying phrase. There is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, which means for us, what are we doing when we skip over him? Well, this sermon series is going to correct that mistake that I have made in the past. So I'm going to preach three sermons, one sermon on his birth, one on his ministry, and then one on his death. And we're going to see what God does in John's life, and we're going to see how he's inextricably tied to Jesus, and we're going to see what John means for you and for us as a whole. Today, we're going to see what John's birth means for the ever-present vice of trying to control our futures. So, if you have a Bible, whether that's a physical Bible or a Bible app on your phone, you can go to Luke chapter 1. We've already had it read, thanks to Sherry, uh, but we're going to go through that passage a little bit more uh, slowly, and we're going we're gonna to learn what uh, the beginning of John's life was all about. Now, Every manuscript that we have of Luke's gospel is labeled. It is not anonymous. We know who wrote it. The manuscripts say the gospel, the good news, according to Luke. And Luke was a Gentile, meaning a non-Jewish man, and he was a doctor. He was sponsored by a wealthy Christian named Theophilus to write this biography of Jesus. And Luke did very meticulous research. He actually tells us in the opening verses that he, he got interviews with eyewitnesses. He was not an eyewitness himself. And this is, a, this is a perfect job for a meticulous doctor to do this meticulous research. But here's the thing. Luke is not just any random doctor pulled off the street. He was also a Christian missionary. He partnered with Paul in his efforts to reach the Gentiles for Christ. So it's not surprising that Paul wanted a doctor with him for his missionary journeys because Paul was beaten up wherever he went. Paul needed a guy with the first aid kit next to him at all times, okay? This means we cannot ignore the fact that one of the four gospels we have, one of the four ancient biographies we have of Jesus, begins by focusing a ton of time on John the Baptist, specifically his parents, Elizabeth and Zechariah. Both this man and woman are from the tribe of Levi, and of the 12 tribes of Israel, the Levites were the tribe of priests. And we're told in the very opening verses of this gospel that Zechariah and Elizabeth were old and childless. We read in chapter 1, verse 5, we'll put that verse on the screen. In the time of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. Skip down a few verses. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Now, for any first or second century Jewish person reading this story, this fact would ring a few bells. Father Abraham and the matriarch Sarah were old and childless too, and in their old age, guess what happened? God spoke to them to tell them that they would have a son. And now we're centuries later in the same history of God and God's people, and another old couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth, are praying for a child in their old age, but the answer has always been no. Until this chapter. 
One day, Zechariah goes to work. He works in the temple in Jerusalem, and the temple has this one main building and then a courtyard where Jews would stand and gather for specific times of prayer in the day. The priest would cast lots just to determine whose turn it was to burn incense. And so this time, it fell on Zechariah, and he went in for the afternoon offering of incense. They, they had this altar that burned this kind of smoke that rises up to heaven, symbolizing the prayers of God's people going to the Lord. And so he's in the middle of this afternoon offering, and if he had finished and everything had gone normally, he was supposed to go outside, bless everyone, and then they would leave. That was the end of their service. They would all go home. But here's the thing. Right in the middle of this offering of prayer and incense, the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah. Now, throughout the Bible, if an angel appears, men and women duck for cover, right? Angels are so holy and so powerful. The almost universal reaction is fear. No one just shrugs their shoulders at angels. They fall to their feet. Now, I think it's a little funny that a priest is shocked that an angel shows up at the temple, right? Who would have expected a messenger of God to show up at church? But there is such good news. We'll put this verse on the screen. The angel says to Zechariah, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. I love all of the promises Gabriel makes. He says, he will be a joy and a delight to you. Many will rejoice because of his birth. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. He'll bring back Israelites to God. He will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. He will, this is one of my favorite promises about John. He will turn the hearts of parents towards their children. Think about these promises for a second. John is going to go before the Lord. He will be a forerunner for the Lord. He's going to minister like the Old Testament prophet Elijah. We'll talk about that next week. He's going to reunite families. And finally, he's going to prepare Israel for their God. Now, we could have a whole sermon dedicated to Zechariah's doubts about these promises, but that's not our goal. Our goal is to focus on John's birth because it is tied to the birth of Jesus. Zechariah immediately goes home after this angelic announcement, and against all odds, the promises come true. We're told that when Zechariah's time of service in the temple was completed, he immediately goes home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, and she declares, the Lord has done this for me. Imagine, after all those years and decades of praying and praying and praying, and the answer is always no, finally the answer is yes. She says, in these days, God has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace. John the Baptist is conceived. But here's one of the most special things about this. Six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy, something eerily similar happens to Elizabeth's relative who lives in Galilee in the north. In the middle of this nowhere village called Nazareth, the same angel appears to a teenage girl. Gabriel is sent to Mary, but this time the angel has greater news. Listen to how similar and how different these announcements are. 
The angel appears to Mary and says, don't be afraid. Where have we heard that before? You will conceive and give birth to a son. Where have we heard that before? But you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Think about all these parallels for a second. John will be great in the Lord's sight. Jesus will be great, period, end of sentence. John will be a prophet of the Most High, but Jesus is Son of the Most High. John will be filled with the Holy Spirit, but Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit. John will prepare people for the Lord, but Jesus is the Lord they're preparing for. From their conception, from their births, these men are connected. You can't take them apart. And you actually see an even greater connection when Mary goes down to see Elizabeth in person. She immediately gets up from this angelic announcement, and the first thing she does is make a beeline to Elizabeth. We're told in Luke, at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. She opens the door, she walks in, and she says, Shalom, and then this happens. Elizabeth hears Mary's greeting, and the baby, John the Baptist, leaps in her womb, and Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. All right, I'm going to be cheesy for a second. Very few things are as wonderful as feeling your child move for the first time. Very few things are as wonderful as that. All of our friends would crowd around Allison and invade her personal space and just hold on to Evelyn just to feel her moving. Imagine how much more wonderful it was for John to hear the voice of Mary, the mother of his Lord. They are so connected. They respond to each other in utero. After John is born, Elizabeth's neighbors rejoice with her. Because of all of these miraculous signs, the news gets around, and their neighbors ask this question, what will become of this child? What is his future going to be like? And Zechariah has these beautiful words. I just want to read them to you. He says, John, you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. That is who John will become. That is his future. But here is the fact that we may not like all that much. John's future is tied to Jesus before John is born. God desired a particular path for John before John made any choices. Prior to any of John's five-year plans or his own goal setting for his career, God knew what he wanted for John. This is why I began by teasing myself about my struggle to control my life. Because this chapter makes me ask a question that I'm not comfortable with, which is, what if God wanted an unchosen future for me? 
right? In American culture, the one thing we more, love more than most things is choice. We want to see all of our options, whether it's the groceries in line at HEB or romantic options on Bumble or our major at UT, whatever it is. We think true freedom is the ability to have all the options before us. And we think true goodness is found in choosing what we want. And we don't think any neighbor should ask any questions about our choices and any politician should limit our right to choose and any market limit our economic options. And then God comes along and he does what Americans do not like. He has plans for our future and he doesn't ask about our preferences. What does Mitch make of a God who takes my future out of my controlling little hands? What if God is not the kind of God who defers to my preferences? What if Jesus is not the kind of Lord who waits to include me in his decision-making process? What if the Holy Spirit doesn't give Mitch an array of interesting life choices that I already like? Because in the life of John the Baptist, we see that God is the kind of God who will tie your fate to Jesus. And I'm sorry to pour salt on the wound for anybody who struggles with control like me, but sometimes God does something worse. He doesn't always give us detailed maps describing his will. Think about all the times he give, gives commands with very sparse information. We're going to put three examples up on the screen. Abraham, go to a land I will show you. God, that sounds great. What land are you talking about? Abraham, go to the land I will show you. Hey, Simon Peter, follow me. Great, Lord, where do I follow you? Follow me. Joshua, be strong and courageous. Sure, God, but what kind of armies am I going to be facing? Be strong and courageous, Joshua. God often points in a direction without giving you much helpful information along the way. Now, we don't just struggle with this as individual Christians. We can struggle with this as a church. What if God has a John the Baptist kind of plan for this church? University Avenue Church of Christ, this is what I have for you. This is what I want you to do. What if he showed up and caught us off guard like he catches Zechariah off guard? What if he showed up to us and said, I want y'all to go where I'm showing you to go? Now, we often think that God's plans sound restrictive. They sound constraining. I can't believe God wants something so specific for my life. Why wouldn't God take into account what we want first? It can feel freeing to think your life has gone according to your plan. But here's the thing. Here's one problem with that. What if everything goes according to plan but in the wrong direction? At some AA meetings, they say, my best thinking got me here. At Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, they sometimes say, my best thinking got me here. What if everything goes according to your plan, but it goes in the wrong direction? 
What we need from God is not an absence of plans. We need guidance. There's this author named David Brooks who wrote a book called The Second Mountain. And he has a really funny name for a commencement address. He calls it a secular sermon. And he says this, when you actually listen to a lot of commencement addresses, you notice that what these secular sermons do is take all of the difficulties of living in your 20s and makes them worse. Graduates are in limbo, and we give them uncertainty. They want direction, and we tell them, figure it out yourself. It's only then that they realize the truth that somehow nobody told them, which is that freedom stinks. What he means is a specific kind of freedom, sometimes the freedom our society offers, infinite choices but no direction, self-definition but no coherence, fully autonomous liberty but no wisdom, and that freedom stinks. Have you tried it? It's not much fun. True freedom is found in the future that God wants for you. True freedom is found in a future tied to Jesus Christ our Lord. True freedom is found in a life like the life of John the Baptist, the greatest prophet ever born among women. <laughs> he didn't have a single word to contribute to God's plan. He wasn't even born yet. That's true freedom. So, if you struggle with the inner control freak like me, and you have a tight grip on your plans, the life of John the Baptist shows you another way to submit to a God who has a better future in mind. And in that plan, we can find true freedom. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we want control over our lives. We want to know what's happening for the rest of the day, the rest of the week, the rest of the month, the rest of this year, the rest of our lives. Anytime something doesn't go according to plan, we ask that you reveal this desire in our hearts. It may be more of a temptation for some than others. But at the end of the day, we know that Christian discipleship is submission to your will. To say, not my will, but yours be done. And inevitably, that means that we give up control. We acknowledge that you are sovereign and we are not. We confess that you are Lord and we are not. But Father, help us to experience that true, abiding, lasting freedom in faithfulness, in following Jesus wherever he wants us to go. And Lord, help us whenever we're impatient, when we, when we want perfect descriptions of the lay of the land, when we want to know exactly what we're headed into, give us patience to trust you wherever we go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.